Hello, I am Dr. Barbara Crow, Dean of the Faculty of Arts and Science at Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario, Canada. Welcome to the Fireplace Series, interdisciplinary and impromptu exchanges between two speakers from different areas of research. Each brings curiosity and generosity. Together, they explore common and uncommon ground. The Fireplace conversation you are about to hear took place on the 14th of February, 2019, between two Queen's professors, Dr. Jackie Davies from the Department of Philosophy and Dr. Paul Grogan from Biology. The topic of their talk together is kindness and interconnectivity. Welcome everyone to the Fireplace series. My name is Laura Cameron. I'm a professor in the Department of Geography and Planning. The conversation today is entitled Kindness and Interconnectivity. The two participants, Dr. Jackie Davies and Dr. Paul Grogan, really had not met before we approached them with this topic. Their daily activities tend to be in different parts of the campus. Jackie's in philosophy and Paul is in the Department of Biology. But they each do a lot of work here and beyond creating which seems very appropriate to call places of kindness. Lecture halls and meeting places where people are encouraged to slow down, take a breath, and to consider profound interconnections with and between other places in the world. Jackie Davies is a mother, teacher, immigrant and settler who has spent most of her life in Haudenosaunee and Anishinaabe territory much of it at Queen's. From her undergraduate studies in life sciences, psychology, and philosophy, to her current affiliations with philosophy, gender studies, Jewish studies, and cultural studies, Jackie is convinced of the epistemic necessity of interdisciplinarity. Community engagement and a deep love of teaching also shape how she thinks about the worlds we belong to. A member of Senate at Queen's, she is also active in efforts related to remembering the lives of incarcerated women in Canada, and she leads a weekly meditation group at Banri. Paul Grogan is interested in how the plants, animals, and social organisms of terrestrial ecosystems interact with each other and with their physical environment. For him, Humans and the impacts of their activities are an integral part of ecosystem ecology. Understanding these interrelationships between biology and the flows of energy and nutrients is the basis for predicting how terrestrial ecosystems will respond to changes in climate, land use, and other perturbations. Paul, Jackie, a warm welcome, and now I hand things over to you. Thank you, Laura, for that um, very kind introduction. Thank you, Matt, for doing the sound. Um, and thanks to all the sponsors of the events and to everyone who's come to share the space and, and time together today. It's, uh, that's really what makes it possible. Um, it's, uh, we didn't toss a coin, but I, I, I sort of volunteered to start off. Um, and to start off with uh, a sort of a meditative 
exercise to help us really focus and, and be uh, present before we start our conversation and then open up to a, a wider conversation. So if you'd like to, to um, find a comfortable position, and if you'd like to close your eyes, it's good if you can have a straight back, not rigid, but straight. You can imagine a string running up and down your spine emerging from the crown of the head. Just imagine that being pulled gently from above. And that can help to align the spine so it's straight but not rigid. And we're just breathing comfortably at our own pace. Noticing how it is to be here aware of the other people in the room. Of the chair supporting us. The ground under our feet. Notice any sounds from outside the room or inside the room. The temperature of the air on our skin. smells, tastes, turn our attention slightly further inward to notice where we are mentally, perhaps busy with something that happened in the past. or maybe worrying or anticipating something that may happen in the future. We just notice all of these things and gently let them go so we can be right here, right now, All we have to do is breathe. And we take now very consciously three breaths in your own time.
And now we can turn our attention to the reason that we're here today. Open ourselves to listening for connections, making new connections, maybe rekindling old connections. With that in mind, we can open our eyes and come back into the space together. And we'll start our conversation. Thanks, Jackie. That was great. <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm in the right mindset now. <laughs> Yeah, it's, um, so I've been, places of kindness was the phrase you used earlier, uh, Laura. In class, I've been doing exercises like this for short periods, depending on the size of the class. I've got one class with about 320 students, where in a 50-minute slot, one couldn't give that amount of time to this kind of activity. So uh, <clears throat> I would give maybe one or two minutes to this kind of thing, and uh, then I teach some small classes where we would do it for a bit longer. It depends on, on the audience and, and the material. But I've been... Um, the other people are doing this too. Not too many in class. There are, most universities have some kind of meditation or mindfulness um, type uh, facility extracurricular, right? But to do it in class, I think, is relatively unusual. And... Uh, I have gone and surveyed the students to see what kind of feedback you know, is this going down well? Is this truly appreciated and that kind of thing? Even asking questions like, should this, this practice should be stopped immediately. <laughs> Strongly agree, agree, whatever, you know. Um, and the, the results are just unequivocal. Yeah. Um, yeah. Ninety odd yeah. percent of students are strongly in favor of this kind of activity. And they find that it relaxes them a little bit. They've been running around all day, like we all do. Running around like headless chickens in this insane modern life. And so um, they really value the opportunity to just take a moment or longer yeah. and slow it down, you know. I've had a similar kind of response. Um, I don't do uh, meditation uh, every class, um, maybe a couple of times in a course. Mm -hmm. um, but when I started doing that in, in my big first year class, I was amazed at the response I met a student actually in the grocery store who came up and shook my hand, <laughs> um, and, and, and several who came up and said how wonderful that was, Right. Uh, and they were very, very affected. And it was only, I mean, I think I watched the clock, it was only about 10 or 15 minutes, um, but it's astonishing how for many of us that will be the only moment of quiet all day, and realizing how crucial that is mm -hmm to learning. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's crucial to breathing, never mind anything else, but, but I think it's absolutely vital to, to learning to, 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 take a, to take a minute and sort of be there. 
So that's the next step. So the question, they certainly enjoy it. It creates a, an, an atmosphere of kindness, if you like, that they seem to appreciate. And they like the little rest, as it were. Yeah. Although it's not a rest in no. the sense. It's about f- focusing and concentrating, concentrating. The mind on one thing yeah. rather than, you know, running around, as I said, like headless chickens, as we normally do. And our brains do that as well, right? Um, but the next thing then is, is it actually enhancing learning? And so what I can tell you is that from the surveys, they feel that it's enhancing their learning. So in other words, some of them will describe, they were sitting there, they're listening to a lecture or whatever it is, their mind gets distracted and they pull it back. Yeah. And they're conscious, it's the awareness point that's really critical. They're actually conscious of doing that. Um, whether it actually facilitates uh, better learning or not is, is a completely different question. Well, this is but where does you're, you're the, the scientist. Well, so yeah. you're looking for the data. You, exactly. Which is, and, which is good. You, you'd need, you'd need yeah. you know, experts yeah. in education to, yeah. to assess that. Yeah. And actually, it's an extremely difficult thing to do, yeah. to, to prove. But anyway, it certainly creates an atmosphere which is conducive to deeper, more engaged learning. Yeah. I'm convinced of that. I think it's important to understand that um, meditation, it's often misunderstood as being a, a relaxation exercise. Um, and sometimes people come away quite frustrated because when you're learning to meditate, the first thing you realize is that your mind is wandering, racing. And if you think you're supposed to be calming down, then you, you know, like most of us perfectionists here, feel like a failure right away, and then all those thoughts start. Um, and so it's not relaxing at all. Mm-hmm. But it's not supposed to be relaxing. Mm-hmm. It's, it is about concentration. It is a concentration technique and you sort of build the mental muscles to concentrate, just as you would with any other exercise. So I often encourage people when I'm doing, say, a breathing meditation, to notice when your mind is is wandering and recognize that that's actually the precise moment where we have an opportunity to learn the skill. Right. Because it's in the coming back to the focal point, to the breath, for example, that, that we're building the habit of coming back from the distractions. So the skill is about learning, being aware of when the mind is wandering, whether it's sensations or feelings or thoughts, just notice it and then come back to whatever it is that you're wanting to focus on. Um, I think perhaps now more than ever, you know, with so many screens and devices and information that we're more distracted than ever I mean, that's one thing is I I do have, at least in my first year class, a very firm no laptops policy. So that's like the first step to being present and and engaging. I put all my notes up online so, you know, people can keep up with with that. But if you're going to be in the same room, I think maybe it's a good idea to be there. Right. I have to say, though, that, and I think you do this too, I think we covered this already, but we're very, very careful to say that this is a voluntary exercise. And, you know, if you, if you wish to participate, that's great. And if you don't, that's fine. We just ask you to be not, not disturb your neighbors. I think that's really important. Yeah, absolutely. And also, um, I, I'm very careful not to use the word meditation just because it's got a certain uh, association with it. I tend to use the word mind calming ah. as a way of just saying that we're just calming down or slowing down the buzzing of the mind, as it were, by focusing on one thing um, as a way of getting that idea across. But the point you raised earlier, so it's not just about the potential to enhance deeper learning, and potential is the word, but there's also the fact that there's 
huge mental health issues in this university and in every other university that we know about, etc., etc., etc. And so one of the survey questions at the end is, you know, is this exercise, has this exercise introduced you to something that's valuable to you in your life? You know, something broader, not too loaded. And again, you know, 80, 90% of the students say yes. That's you great. Know? Um, and of course, more and more of them are getting familiar with this kind of exercise through other yeah. ways too. Yeah. It's changing so quickly. Um, but they, they do value it. And it's important to think about outside the box. You know, oh, if well, I'm teaching a biology yeah. course on biodiversity or something like that, sure, I can, tell, I can speak for 50 minutes on the value of that. But it's important. I mean, we're here as educators. And we have our areas of expertise, and we tend to, unfortunately, get categorized into those areas where we should be more interdisciplinary, but that's a, another discussion, I guess. <laughs> but, but it is really yeah. important to reach out. And so um, uh, it struck me in the last few days as we were getting ready for this. So the Queen's motto, um, it's, it's something to the effect of sapienta et doctrina stabilitas. Sapienta, wisdom, doctrina, learning will bring stability to you, or may it bring stability to you, or something like that. I really like that, because it emphasizes the balance. We're here, obviously, to educate, to transmit knowledge on whatever our topic of, of expertise is. But you also, it's an extraordinary privilege to be able to stand up in front of 20 or 300 people. It doesn't really matter. That's, that's an extraordinary privilege, but also an extraordinary responsibility. And I do think... As time has gone on, you know, I wouldn't have said this maybe 30 years ago, but I do think as time has gone on, recognizing the social issues that there are out there, we all feel we have some wisdom, and your wisdom is different to mine, and your wisdom is different to mine, but we all feel we have some wisdom, hopefully. It's okay to spend a little bit of our time transmitting that, or at least exposing students to the ideas that are in there. So. Maybe it's a, a, a disciplinary thing, but uh, for me, I get well. I get to say meditation because that's right on the syllabus. Mm -hmm. um, I just <laughs> finished, uh, 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 gosh, month six weeks reading uh, Descartes' Meditations. So I get an excuse to do meditation. Say, how is this like or not like mm -hmm. what Descartes is doing? And I used to think that it's not like it, but actually, it is like it. Um, the kind of incredible concentration in, in um, complex logical argumentation, I mean, or doing math, uh, requires you to really, really focus um, and, and be able to, to notice the difference between a distraction and following a line of, line of argument. Um, so we talk about that. But I also realized, uh, I was trying to think the other day, when did I start using meditation in, in, in classes? And funnily enough, it arose out of, out of a worry on my part about destabilizing students with teaching. Mm -hmm. um, because a lot of what um, we do in philosophy is upset people. Um, this is the long tradition from, from Socrates, the gadfly. I mean, he annoyed people to death, literally. He was executed for corrupting the youth, which you know, was, was questioning everything, right? Um, and, and we often talk about that in philosophy as if it's a ha-ha, um, without thinking really, what are the implications of upsetting people, shaking up people's assumptions? 
um, especially young people at um, a fairly vulnerable point in their lives. You know, moving away from home for the first time and you come out of high school thinking you've got everything down, you were the best in your class, you know all the stuff and you know what you want to be and then you come here and say, oh my goodness, all the stuff I don't know. And then I introduce a series of teachings that makes it even worse. <laughs> uh, and in particular, um, I sort of go through early modern epistemology, ending up with David Hume, who says there's no self. There are no causal relations. Well, there are patterns, but there's nothing underlying it. There's no God, he says. I mean, that one the students are mostly on board with. But no self and no causality is really disturbing. And I started noticing that a certain group of students would be very disturbed by that. Um, I mean, there'll be people who think, well, that's just silly, and we just have to memorize whatever she wants us to memorize for the tests. And, and other people who don't think about it very much, but I really want to engage with the people who are going to take it seriously mm -hmm. and reflect on it. And then I, I, I thought about, oh my goodness, I am really, this is, this could be quite destabilizing. What am I going to offer back to sort of knit the self back together again. Um, and I came across some research by Alison Gopnik, who's a philosopher, um, and she also does psychology, child psychology, who noticed, as many of us did, did have, that David Hume's metaphysics is Buddhist, basically. And she discovered that, that there's actually historical uh, links that suggest that there was he may have indirectly had exposure to Tibetan Buddhist teachings, which is extraordinary, through the Jesuits who were kind of the internet at the time. Um, <laughs> and uh, the interesting thing is, is there's this radical difference between the way you would get this metaphysics in a Buddhist context and in a Western classroom you wouldn't get those teachings without already knowing how to meditate, right? So you'd have a lot of practices mm. that would help you cope with emptiness. If all you have is your teacher telling you there's nothing holding it together in the classroom and then you've got to go to the next thing and write your exams, if you, give, if you seriously give that thought, it's a, it can be quite destabilizing. So I started to give more thought um, not just to the material that I'm teaching, but to the people, the subjects, and thinking a lot more about that I have a responsibility to connect, just as I'm asking them to connect with these historical people and teachings. Um, there, there, are, there are potentially damaging ways we can connect, and there are potentially, um, I don't know, healing or growth positive ways that we can connect. So meditation is certainly one part of that, but mm. it, these thoughts started to come together mm. that way for me. Well, I mean, you say it's disciplinary, and I think that's, that may be less so as time goes on and mm. as we begin to expand out our thinking. So um, Laura described me as, uh, was reading the introduction, I think it was um, interested in animal, plant, and social organisms. Well, that, that's actually a misprint. It should be soil organisms. <laughs> but that's fine. Um, the key point is that humans are part of ecosystem ecology. Inherently, absolutely right. fundamental. Right. Do you know? Now, yeah. it's true that at lower levels of biology, we don't think of humans as being a part of the system in quite the same way. 
Um, so then you're thinking about ecosystem ecology, terrestrial ecosystem ecology in my case, and climate change or something like that. And humans are a core part of the organisms that are being affected yeah. and, of course, the organisms that are causing it. And then you start thinking about the interactions and, and the interrelationships between plants, animals, soil organisms, and humans. And um, if we're going to um, understand the issues, let alone begin to respond to them in a way that's effective, we've got to recognize those interactions. And one of them is, goes all the way to the extreme of there is no self. Mm. So we just finished uh, a course, a small four-year seminar course, where we read a book called uh, Buddhist Biology. Max was there. Yeah. And uh, we had a lot of fun with that. Um, and in fact, we did do meditation in that course because it was so um, directly connected, as you say, with understanding the concepts and um, having a way of dealing with the core realities of what's involved. So um, I do think as time goes on, as we learn to be more interdisciplinary and realize that we're all on one planet, faced with a whole range of issues, environmental obviously, but social, perhaps even more important, um, we're going to start making those bridges, if you know yeah. what I mean. And one of them is relinquishing the self to some degree, the yeah. ego-driven ego self at yeah. least. Do you know? Yeah, and, and it's important, I think, to make the distinction between emptiness and nihilism. Mm -hmm. So the idea is not that there's nothing there. The point is that there's lots there. And, and I mean, the, the, the relations between all that's there are very complex and shifting. Um, but the idea that we are these sort of atomistic, discrete mm -hmm. selves that, are, that only connect when we make contracts or decide on purpose to connect um, is, is misleading. And, and a relatively recent yeah. Phenomenon historically, yeah. probably early modern European invention. It's come to dominate so much that it seems odd to us in as, as moderns mm -hmm. to think of ourselves as anything but individuals who choose to interact or not. But there's much older wisdom systems, um, and it's a, a great privilege for all of us here who who are who have been exposed to if if we've been exposed to any. Anishinaabe or Haudenosaunee teachings about all the relations and to become more and more aware. So I think even beyond crossing academic disciplines to recognize that we are actually in relation with the wind mm -hmm. or the trees <clears throat> or the sun, the moon. As uh, you, you said in our earlier conversation, I think we are, we are made up of, or maybe I said this, we are stardust, as, as Joni, mm -hmm. Joni Mitchell said that. <laughs> but we are, right? Literally. Yeah. It's stardust and, and the sunshine that, that, that makes the, the plants do their thing and, and, and the plants are eaten by animals and so on and we breathe the same air. But also we see each other and we hear each other and all of this goes into us. So we're deeply connected on so many levels, but mostly, again, us moderns, we moderns, unaware of that um, so whether that's I think the trick is to to become more conscious of the connections that are there and maybe and this I'm not sure of I think we share some doubts on this maybe with the awareness and the consciousness we might find a little bit of space to think about 
the difference between connecting well and connecting badly, mm-hmm. perhaps. Yeah, yeah. I certainly would agree that um, with everything you said there, but especially the idea that um, we call ourselves Homo sapiens, Homo, the wise man, or wise, wise humankind. And I suspect there's a lot of arrogance in that. <laughs> <laughs> we came from Homo erectus and whatever, you know. Um, but we, I think we both agree that we have the potential to rise to the level where we truly live wise lives. And that wisdom would come, in my view, um, from a transition in awareness. So from the unawareness you talked about to becoming aware. If one is truly aware of all those interactions and how significant they are between the elements across time, going back to previous generations, etc., and going into the future, if one was living truly aware of that, you would live in a very different way. You would have different sets of values. And ultimately, kindness would be one of the key ones. In other words, if we recognize the true realities of our existence, the suffering associated with every single one of our lives, we're all of different suffering, but different backgrounds, different histories, different nasty things that happened, different good things that happened, etc. But fundamentally, we all share the same kinds of suffering associated with sickness, associated with aging, and associated with the, the thoughts of mortality. And the fact of mortality. And the fact of mortality, yeah. exactly, yeah. yeah. And so um, what I'm, where I'm going here is, given those things, if we could really accept the reality of those, instead of distracting ourselves away from them, which we're so good at, and you know, in so many different ways, but just by keeping busy, for example, is a way we, we distract ourselves away. If we were to embrace those realities and say, this is the way it is, this is actually the way it is, we would live differently. We might come down to the conclusion that one of the only things that really matters is how we treat other people. And not kindness. just people. Not just kindness. people. Yep. Yeah, kindness to other people, kindness to ourselves, yeah. uh, kindness to other species, kindness to the environment. That, you know, I mean, people on their deathbed are, are known for not saying, I wish I'd worked harder, right? That's a very rare event. When you're on your deathbed, what are you going to be thinking? You're going to be thinking back about your life and thinking, it's maybe not so much, what did I do? Did I discover some great thing or whatever? How did I treat people? And not just the people who are directly related to you. And so I think that's the fundamental core of it. And that's why I was so excited to, when the word kindness was in there to, to really nail it down because that, that really provides a um, construed meaning to life yeah. that has true value, recognizing the real realities of that suffering that I described earlier on. I think I want to come back and do my, my, my nitpicky philosophical thing <laughs> and, 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 and pause on a couple of, of things that you said there. Um, one is the when we talk about we, especially we people, um, that I would want to keep questioning that, given what we've both said about being so interconnected and not separated, mm-hmm. either as a species or as individuals, that to really think about what does it mean to think about this we differently. Um, and, the, and also about kindness, actually a couple of things about kindness. One is that it's, we tend to think of that as just being nice. Um, but we can be nice really badly. Uh, there's, a, there's a lovely Buddhist story about somebody who wanted to 
uh, and, and out of kind motivation, wanted to rescue the fish from the lake out of fear that they were drowning. And so took the fish out of the lake. So we need always, with kindness, mm -hmm. also the wisdom yeah. to, uh, I, I, think, I think it's a Buddhist teaching that these are like the two wings. Yep, absolutely. So that, they, that, they, that they go together. Another flip side of kindness, and I think this helps with, with the interconnectivity across species and kinds, um, is the flip side is gratitude. And I've really come to appreciate that in hearing the Haudenosaunee words that come before all others, that, that, the, that the words go through all of the different kinds of beings with whom we're in relation, greeting them and thanking them. And, and just to take that moment to be aware of all these things, um, um, you know, the sun rose today, yay. Hmm. <laughs> um, uh, there is ground under my feet. Um, to, to be aware of uh, and see that as kindness. You know, the fact of these things being there is a kindness. And I, I read from um, a Haudenosaunee author at the beginning of my first year class this year and invited students to respond to that and ask what they think that has to do with our project philosophically. And so it goes through all the different kinds of beings, and, and two that stuck out for one particular student were the winds and the insect life. And the student said, well, this sounds all very nice, mm -hmm. but I don't care about the wind, <laughs> and I hate insects. I thought, wow, <laughs> you can't not care about the wind. <laughs> That's weather. <laughs> That's, you know, moving seeds around that's uh, enabling uh, migrations. I mean, the, the, the winds are pretty important. And the insects, also pollination, eating dead stuff. I mean, we'd be in a real mess if the insects were not here. <laughs> but it was such a surprise to me that, I, I mean, I had sort of worked my, I'm sure at a certain point in my life, yeah, when I first emigrated to Canada, I did not like a lot of insects. Mm -hmm. I was very badly bitten by mosquitoes. But I've come to, to say, my goodness, they are doing important stuff. Um, but it's, so it, it takes at least that moment to, to know that all these things are here before even thinking, you know, and, and how are we helping each other? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Gratitude. Gratitude yeah. is yeah. so, so fundamental, isn't it? Yeah. It's, yeah. It's, I, th I think it's like the other side of the coin mm -hmm. with kindness as a kind of an out we're moving mm -hmm. thing and gratitude is an accepting so it's it is a yeah. touching backwards and and, yeah. and forward and both of them as a practice right right not merely a feeling right but an actual practice that takes practice and takes some wisdom okay yeah that that is developed i mean i'm not claiming mm -hmm. to have it mm -hmm. all by any means mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. by any means <laughs> <laughs> I've just got the nod from Laura to oh. say we've got five minutes before oh we're going to open the floor. Is that, that the plan? Um, so I, I would like to lead a short meditation, if I may. Um, Lovely. And uh, anybody who doesn't wish to participate, of course, is very welcome to just stay there, but uh, not disturb others. And so, again, if you'd like to um, sit with your back, maybe off the chair, alert, in other words. It's not a relaxation, it's an alertness. Um, 
And the fundamental, this is one of my favorite uh, meditations, and uh, the fundamental reason for sharing it with you here now is that for me, it provides the ultimate rationale for why kindness is so important. So you might like to close your eyes and, um, or just gaze into the distance, whatever you're most comfortable with, and take a few deep breaths. And I'm going to assume that you're all familiar with Google Earth, this software program that you can zoom in and zoom out and see large areas and small areas. And I want you to zoom it right in. I want you to look at this Google Earth screen at the moment, and it's zooming right down on the top of your head. And you can see that little spiral of hair that's around the crown of your head, which you probably haven't seen very often on your own head, but you can see it today. And then very slowly, let's zoom out. So you can see your shoulders. You can see yourself sitting in this chair. You can see the whole room we're in at the moment, this fireside room. Now we can see the campus. A small city. Some large lakes. All on a large island. And now you can see the whole earth. Here we are, sitting in the room on the second floor of a building, in a small city, on the edge of a planet, spinning around in the middle of nowhere. And you notice I use the word we very deliberately. Not here you are, but here we are, together, on the edge of a planet, spinning around in the middle of nowhere. So as we come out of this reflection, you might like to just wriggle your fingers and toes and gently open your eyes 
and connect with the space here. Thank you. Beautiful, thanks. Our sincere gratitude to both of you. We can now open this up for questions from the audience. And I can start by going back to your discussion about the effects of thinking about kindness and interconnectivity on your teaching. What implications might there be for doing research? I think of um, kindness as um, as a way of connecting, and I think of connecting or being in relation as actually a way of knowing. So it couldn't help but be essential to to research. Um, I think the alternative is a kind of disciplinary mastery, which has some value, um, but also tends to involve a certain kind of um, production of ignorance. So a certain kind of not knowing. Um, I don't think any of us could ever know everything. We can't be in the same kind of relation with, with all the things there are to. Um, but it's being conscious, I think, about, about the connections that, that, that we're making and thinking about knowledge, not simply about putting a piece of information into my head, but, but um, yeah, making connections. And making connections in a very lived way. Um, that, I mean, that's what comes to mind for me at any rate. How about you, Paul? Yeah, two, two things that I guess are related in some way. The first is the idea of interdisciplinarity. And so working with human geographers or working with whatever it provides extraordinary potential. And, of course, we tend to be moving the budget model that the university currently has is moving the other direction. You know, we tend to be siloized, or if that's the appropriate word. Um, and, and that's unfortunate, I think. I, we really need to move in the other direction for reasons I, I hinted at earlier. But the other one is, I was thinking a lot about the phrase, you've got to be cruel to be kind. I think there's, there are times when what strikes me, um, working with students is a wonderful opportunity to be kind, to show kindness. Empathy, we didn't actually use the word empathy yet, but empathy is, a, for me, a very important part of kindness. So can I identify with my students? Can I see where they're seeing things? And if I can do that, then I can really help them, right? So part of that is kindness, if you know what I mean. But the cruel-to-be-kind idea is the idea that there may be a certain point based on wisdom, if one has sufficient wisdom, um, where you'd say to the student, you'd give them some unwelcome news, mm -hmm. right? But which you would feel ultimately is going to be to their benefit. But they don't realize that. And so it takes a lot of courage to do that, in fact. But it is kind, provided, of course, the wisdom is well-based. And, you know, that's... That's the other side of it. But so that, they're the two things that struck me when I, when I thought about it. Um, yeah. Yeah. Thanks, Clara. Yeah, hi. Uh, my name's Colin. I'm a PhD student in cultural studies, uh, and my work 
primarily focuses on uh, Buddhism environmental philosophy. So this is very much my class. And I think it's really important uh, to get a lot of these ideas out into the general public. So I thank you for using this platform to do so. Um, one of the, just a brief comment and then a question. Um, I found it interesting, and perhaps it's just for the audience, but Buddhism makes uh, a pretty simple distinction between kindness and compassion. Kindness being the wish for others to be happy and the act of kind of uh, work to make others happy, whereas compassion uh, is the wish to alleviate the suffering of others. And they do go hand in hand. Um, but they're kind of part of this broader uh, practice of the four immeasurables, where another one is sympathetic joy, being happy for the happiness of others, and then equanimity, which I think ties in really well with interconnectivity, being able to apply all these things to absolutely everybody and everything. Um, but that kind of ties into my question, where perhaps this is just me being very close to my subject, and perhaps you having a bit of distance to the subject, but I wonder what, I originally was thinking of phrasing it as the um, appropriateness, but I don't think that's the, the quite, quite the correct question, but the effectiveness of retrieving these ideas from the Buddhist tradition and deploying them selectively. Um, do you think this is the most effective mode of kind of disseminating these ideas or really paying, uh, giving these ideas the most opportunity to be effective in the world and kind of doing what they're uh, intended to do within the Buddhist tradition? I think there's a tremendous amount of value in um, engaging and for some people re-engaging with all sorts of wisdom traditions that have that, I keep saying we moderns, um, have lost touch with or perhaps didn't have touch with. Um, Buddhism is one. Um, and I'm, I'm not entirely happy with uh, superficial engagement um, because I think some of the, the, the wisdom gets a bit distorted and um, folks m might end up going and rescuing the fish. Um, <laughs> not quite um, understanding. I mean, there, there's so much there. So I think um, it's good to encourage people to start because you have to start somewhere. Um, yeah, um, but but I, and again, I wouldn't want to say only Buddhism. I mean, I, I, I the, the the privilege I've had of learning some uh, Haudenosaunee teachings. Um, there's just tremendous wisdom there as as well. But all all of these things have relationality in common. Um, I like what you said about, about the different, very subtle distinctions there. I mean, that's the kind of reason why it really matters to get deeply into it, to understand why those distinctions matter. We had a little conversation last week about whether to put loving kindness on the poster or not, or whether people might be alienated by the word love. And so we sort of go gently with, with, with kindness. Mm. I mean, what I had in mind was metta, um, specifically, but... Um, you know, one of the things that we can do is sort of get into that to talk about what, what those... Does that answer your question? I'm not sure. Yeah, yeah. Or maybe you can rephrase and... No, I think, I think that is answering my question. I think you're saying that um, it's, it's a skillful way of kind of approaching this subject, uh, particularly for people who aren't, uh, aren't really concerning themselves with, like, deeply gra 
grappling with the idea of kindness and just getting it out in that way uh, is kind of getting the foot in the door to like open. Yeah, these these are these are old traditions yeah. with l thousands of years of practices and re writings and teachings. Um, so I think that that it's good if we go as deeply into it as as we can. But as I said before, we have to start somewhere. So I'm glad I'm glad to hear that you are doing that. That's great. Yeah, I, 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 to follow on from that, I, one of the things I love is the golden rule, and the fact that you know, do unto others as them do unto you, is has, is I'm most familiar with it in the Christian tradition. But in fact, in every major culture, it seems, or at least all the ones that I'm aware of, that kind of philosophy is there. After all, we're social organisms wherever we originated from. So it makes sense in some ways that all cultures would have the essence of kindness, for example, um, in there, the essence of the idea of suffering and relieving suffering in there. I think in the West, we've tended to steer away from that or overlook it to some degree and get focused more on different kinds of values. And Buddhism in particular, Buddhist philosophy, not Buddhist religion, which I, I assume is... That's, we're all clear. I don't think any of us is... Um, they are obviously interlinked, but it's Buddhist philosophy that I'm interested in and certainly what we've talked about mostly today. Um, Buddhist philosophy, it seems to me, articulates the key ideas particularly well. But as, as um, Jackie was saying, they're probably inherent, in, you know, obviously in the Haudenosaunee, but in many other cultures too. It's just that they've got kind of sidetracked to some degree, especially in the Western one, I think. Hi, uh, I'm Alicia. I'm doing my MA in philosophy, uh, primarily working on um, environmental ethics and philosophy of race. Um, so I was quite interested, Paul, in what you said um, in your first answer, I think, or was it just this one, about the um, cruel-to-be-kind situation. Mm -hmm. And um, so it might be kind of a, a hard question. Maybe I'm steering the conversation in a way that is counterproductive, but um, I was just kind of wondering if you guys might speak a little bit to the place of, or, or you know, maybe if there is that same type of, you know, obligation to kindness um, to those people who not only just don't recognize the interconnectivity of all beings, but who are actively working on, you know, uh, destroying other people's existence and and actively working to, you know, um, yeah. Make, make others um, extinct, um, problematize their existence in that relational world. Um, and, and yet, how it is that one might still be kind, but try and bring them to the light. Thanks. Uh, I think of two things. I think of, um, some of us were at a talk by Michael Doxtater, who's the uh, Queen's Indigenous, or one of the Queen's Indigenous scholars. And he, he had a wonderful first slide where he said something, or he had written up, um, um, Hurt people hurt people. Healed hurt people help hurt people heal. And so there is one tradition, where this goes back to this, the other question, in, from my perspective I would have talked about victims of victims and that kind of idea, but they're obviously very, very closely related. So, um, for me, I think if one recognizes that every single human has gone through ups and downs, is, is, has got one set of cards, and we've all got a different set of cards in terms of the genes and all that kind of thing, and then different experiences impacting on that, um, some behave in ways that I wish they didn't behave. Sure, and I'm sure there's many other people who would feel that way. 
Um, but somehow, if you can take a grander view, the bigger picture, every person has, is going through suffering. Different kinds of suffering, but every person is going through suffering. Um, what can one do? One can become, be aware of that. And I guess going back to the classroom idea that we talked about earlier, I mean, we are role models, as I'm, I'm talking about the faculty and the grad students. We are role models. There are a lot of young people watching us and seeing how we behave, seeing how we react to things, seeing how we think about events that happen that we don't agree with, etc. And providing a, an overview that's based on the big picture, in other words, with some empathy for the situation, is probably the most valuable way forward. So there's some perspectives on that. Yeah, I'd love to add. Um, I, and the, 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 the tradition in which, or a couple of sort of westernized Tibetan schools of Buddhism are where I've learned or, or studied a little bit of Buddhist philosophy and spirituality. I would say I, I wouldn't want to make such a sharp distinction between religion and philosophy, and I'm not sure even religion is the right word. Um, but anyway, in, in, um, in westernized Tibetan traditions, as in original Tibetan traditions, there's lots of, of statues and images. And um, in the, the tradition that, that, that I started learning in, I was quite taken aback by um, statues and images that looked really violent. Um, sort of a, a, a warrior with a sword, looking with a really angry face. What's, the, what's that all about? And um, I was told that this was, and, and have learned that this is about using the sword of wisdom to cut through delusions, right? Uh, and that, that's really essential. There is a, a sort of a sword that's needed to cut, uh, to cut through our mistaken ideas. And this, in turn, brings to mind um, Martin Luther King's um, idea of, I'm not sure if I'm using the right language, creative conflict. That um, um, peacemaking and, and working for justice is not simply about being nice. Sometimes we need confrontation, not in order to beat down an enemy, but in order to generate something better. So that if we can think of conflicts as generative and creative, and the kinds of practices he engaged in and encouraged were an example of that. Um, and one last example comes to mind for me. When I think of some of the most important things that I've learned, uh, someone who, who is really important in my mind uh, is the late uh, Patricia Montour Angus, who was a Queens grad. Um, and I, I knew her slightly when she was here. We were at the university at the same time. I, was, I did my undergrad degree here um, and, and worked with the prisons. And at the time I worked with the Elizabeth Fry Society. And she, along with also the late Art Solomon and some other local um, people who were involved with the Native Sisterhood and Brotherhood, called us to account the E. Fry Society. We had a meeting in the library downtown where they told us precisely how racist we were. And this was a progressive feminist organization 
understood itself as working towards social justice, and we were being told how deeply and terribly racist we were. We didn't have a single indigenous person on staff. Most of us knew next to nothing. And this is a significant part of the people that we worked with. Um, and, and, and they were certainly angry. I mean, and, but, no, but, and very articulate and very patient and gifted us with the time and the lessons. Um, some of my colleagues were quite upset about this and, and but this has stuck with me with, with one of the most powerful lessons I've ever had. So sometimes that kind of connection, that is a connection, right? So it's not just being angry for the sake of beating someone down, but it's for the sake of cutting through ignorance. I'm, I'm grateful to this day for the gift of, of, of that, cutting through some of my ignorance. Hope that helps. It does, thank you. Thank you both so much for thank you for being here today. That was really interesting that talk. Um, and I guess uh, one of the things I'm thinking about is um, this concept of gratitude being an inward thing and kindness sort of being an outward thing. But wondering where kindness to oneself fits into this conversation, and even in terms of thinking about you know in your last moments when you're on your deathbed and you know really it's all about kindness. But thinking about, you know, kindness towards other people, but what about kindness towards ourselves? And if we took better care of ourselves, would there be less, you know, would that help, you know, um, with the amount of kindness we need to give to others? And do we need to learn kindness to ourselves before we can be kind to others? Or is this is there this emphasis on being kind to other people for various reasons before we think about taking care of ourselves? if you can make sense of any of that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's a really good question. I'll go first? Sure. Um, so my first reaction to that is that the two go together. The two are completely interlinked. In other words, um, being kind to other people um, in a truly empathic way, not, not just being nice and leaving the door open or whatever, you know, that kind of thing, is um, there is, um, or there can be, a benefit, it can make oneself feel better, right? If, and so that goes back to this idea, for me at least, that kindness is one of the ultimate rationales for living. You know, it's, well, it's one of the things we should focus on most because um, it makes sense in the way I've outlined. It benefits other people, but it also benefits oneself. Self in the, in the, in the, with the guarded way we've been talking about it. But, um, so there, there's a feedback, if you like, um, that uh, is positive. In other words, positive on both sides, or can be. Even if it isn't reciprocated, if there isn't gratitude on the other side, that's okay. You know, so this brings back to the previous question. Uh, it was great that Jackie pulled on the idea that um, one can respond individually, but of course, engaged activism is we have a profound responsibility to come together as groups and act in ways. Um, that are beneficial in whatever way we think it is. Um, but to thine own self be true, or at least, um, no, I prefer to use the one, um, doing the right thing. Doing the right thing because it is the right thing, regardless of the lack of gratitude, whatever, lack of response. Ultimately, that seems to me to be a primary driver. That makes sense? Yeah, and so the idea of being kind to others... 
So the idea of being kind to others is being kind to yourself. Exactly. Yeah. They are so interlinked because if we really want to push it, there is no self. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, you know, but yeah. anyway, yeah. Jackie. Yeah, I, want, I would want to say that the same thing, that, that the best thing that we can do for ourselves is to get over ourselves. <laughs> um, and, and that kindness um, and gratitude are a really good way to do that. Um, but at the same time, well, I'll say another thing about, uh, there's a central Buddhist teaching about, about the problem of self-grasping that is trying to hold on to our the things that we're attached to, um, and that can be ideas, or that can be feelings. You know, the, there's a teaching that the, the world is full of three kinds of, of, of beings, the ones we love, the ones we hate, and everyone else. Um, and, and that sort of defines who we, who we are. So if we don't let go of the, I'm defined by who I love and who I hate, we miss all those other ones. Right? So, so, so there's kind of an opening up to all the, the possibilities. At the same time, uh, I mentioned earlier metta. There's a meditation um, called metta bhavana, which gets translated roughly as generating loving kindness, goes through stages of wishing happiness and freedom from suffering to different kinds of, of people. But it starts with yourself may I be happy and free from suffering. And then you go to a friend, and then you go to a stranger, then you go to someone who annoys you, <laughs> and then you sort of move out, as Paul did in, in his meditation, to sort of the universe of beings. And I've heard this story, story secondhand that the, the Dalai Lama visited, apparently, and um, they were, I think somebody was doing this, or they were talking about this, this meditation, and somebody said, Actually, I have a lot of difficulty with that first step. That's the hardest step, to wish loving kindness to myself. And, and apparently the, the Dalai Lama thought there was a translation problem. How can this be? <laughs> I mean, the reason for starting with wishing loving kindness to the self is that that's supposed to be the easiest step. Um, but the, 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 the people that he was visiting assured him, no, in fact, that is a problem that we particularly have here. Um, and this was so alien to him that, it, that um, it's, 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 it's interesting. So clearly in, in Buddhist traditions, in Eastern traditions, there is an idea of, of, of gentleness or, or, or kindness to self but it's a different kind of idea of, of self than the modern idea of self that we get stuck on, that we both don't love ourselves enough and we're too fixated on at the same time. So there's, there's really something to work on there. Um, the traditions that I've worked with really suggest, though, that the, the, the gratitude and the kindness is a way to, to start moving that a bit. Thank you for that question. Hi, my name is Nadia Morel, and I'm a staff at the Arts and Science, the Faculty of Arts and Science. I would like to thank you for starting this conversation with pausing moments and ending it with the pause. I loved your zoom out um, technique. I actually doing, do it during meetings, <laughs> I n- but I never leave the meeting room. I just, <laughs> and it's very effective. I find that I become more, less opinionated and more at surrender 
when I leave my body, when people are around discussing a specific topic. My question is, um, because you have experience with students, I have two kids. One is a 12-year-old, a girl, and he's very kind and loving, and a son, he's nine. Um, and I'm trying to teach them mindfulness, to pause throughout the day, and emotional intelligence. But I find, with my experience with both of them living in the same environment, my son is more receptive and more at surrender. Where my daughter, she, she's still very kind and loving, but the pausing moment, it really makes her uncomfortable. And um, she would do it maybe in a different way. Why She likes to dance or maybe to draw. That's her own of uh, time to pause. So I was wondering from your experience with students, do you find some students have more resistance to this way of sitting? And I'm not sure if people experience that today too. I have no problem with it. And I think I always meditated before I even knew because in my personality, I love to pause since I was little. So, and I find it the same with my kids. My son is more receptive to it where my daughter is not. So, with your experience with your student, do you find there was resistance and then shift with practice? Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, in that survey I mentioned, the first question is, did you feel uncomfortable the first time we did this? And yes, the vast majority do. And then obviously they, they change their opinion, you know, in subsequent ones. So, yeah, definitely... Um, there is that issue. I also think that um, uh, what we're really saying here, or I think what one of the key things we're saying is that greater awareness is very important in many ways, right? And I do think that mind calming meditation really, really is effective for some people, including myself. But I don't necessarily think it's effective for everybody. I think that would be a big mistake to, to think that. There are so many different ways of seeing things. Um, but the idea of pausing, when you get to the traffic lights at the junction of Union and University and the light's red and you've got to wait, that's an opportunity. That's an opportunity. You've got a whole 45 seconds or whatever, wait, look around, you know. So maybe there are things like that that um, you, without, I don't think everybody's suited to the, to the meditation mode, if you follow me. It's very helpful for some, for sure. I heard of a, a beautiful practice that came from um, Plum Village, where uh, Thich Nhat Hanh um, is, is resident, and the, the Zen uh, tradition, or forest Zen, I'm not sure, if the, anyway, the tradition. Uh, one of the teachings they had was to use the sound of a bell, any bell, so if somebody's phone going off or... Um, you know, cash register bell or, or any bell, that's always a signal to stop and take three breaths. So, so all these things that are normally sort of, you know, a little bit alarming, oh, good, this is a moment for three breaths, and only three breaths. I mean, you keep breathing, but you only have to notice the three breaths. It's a beautiful practice. The person who I heard that story from um, said that he was visiting Plum Village and, and went to town, and this is in France, went to town to one of the grocery stores. They were buying their groceries. And, there, and, and, and somebody's phone or the cash register went off. And he said how incredibly anxious he felt because they're in the line at the cash register. <laughs> thought, oh, I have to stop and have three breaths. Oh, everyone's going to be annoyed with me. And sort of all this anxiety. But he did it. He learned he has to do this. 
and he said the wonderful experience was was the, the people in the stores were used to monks from Plum Village <laughs> coming down, and what great kindness that was that 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 in fact to discover that that the people were appreciative and patient. So it was this lovely discovery. I've certainly noticed it amongst students and, and when I lead meditation groups. Um, it's, it's a wonderful opportunity to look out in a large lecture theater, because they mostly close their eyes and I, I sometimes don't, and see some people who are totally blissful, other people who are completely fidgety and uncomfortable, and that's fine. Um, the experience is whatever's coming up for you at that moment. We distract ourselves a lot, but many of us distract ourselves for good reasons because we don't have good practices. Uh, we don't have the knowledge and the skill to deal with all the stuff that comes up. And what comes up is all the stuff that's around us. And so sometimes distraction is a survival technique. Um, and so I think we have to be um, kind and, mm -hmm. and, and mm -hmm. careful with uh, what we ask of each other. So it's, it's, it's a skill to be developed slowly and if someone's really keen on it, great. And other, other, for other folks, patience, you know, they'll get there. Thank you so much. Thank you. Um, hi there, my name is Claudia um, and I'm a PhD student in human geography. Actually, I wanna say more than human geography. Um, so my question comes in about kind, but without collapsing kindness, how do you manage conflicts of kindness where you have, let's say, two or three different groups uh, that require kindness, but whose requirements of kindness conflicts? So in order to be kind to either of these groups, your action in one way or another will end up harming. So I, I know that there's, how do, how do you manage those conflicts of kindness um, is, is my, my first question. And then my second question is, Going forward, if we wanted to read more and learn more about kindness, who would you suggest that we start to grapple with? Uh, thinkers, philosophers, biologists, I don't know, uh, who would be really great to start thinking more about this more than human way of being kind or, or, or thinking through these ideas? Okay, thank you. Wow. I think with the, the, the problem that you described about conflicting demands to, to, to be receptive or to be kind or to connect um, is like most of the time. Um, and I think that all we can do is seek forgiveness because we will inevitably fail we cannot meet the infinite demands. Um, if you don't believe in forgiveness, and that's a complex concept all by itself, uh, at least patience. I mean, here's where the teachings of um, in, 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 in Buddhist and, and other Indian wisdom traditions have the, the, the long view of many lives. So it's a, it's a learning process that can take a very, very, very long time. So what we need is the wisdom to keep learning and the patience to, you know, be patient with ourselves while we inevitably make mistakes. Um, yeah, there aren't any simple answers there except to keep trying and to learn to be skillful 
in, in, in making the decisions about what we're going to do in any given situation. I th I, that's all I can think of. Um, I suppose what I think about is um, humility yeah. and uh, empathy. And so uh, rather than, I, I, if I understood you correctly, you've got groups that are conflicting against each other. Somehow they have to find some common ground. So, so to give you an example, right? Yeah. Um, I, I don't eat meat, but I'm traveling through rural Vietnam. And uh, a common courtesy when mm -hmm. entering a person's yeah. home is for them to provide you with meat. That's right. yeah. And in this situation, I'm holding two conflicting ethical views here, yeah. right? Where um, I take one stand... I believe in, in this cross-cultural communication and I believe very much in being kind in this cross-cultural communication as a means of um, connectivity, right? This, even if you can't speak the same language, you're using your bodies and you're, you're, you're generating something between one another. Mm -hmm. And in the act of refusing a meal, that's, that's a, it's a huge affront. Yeah. So you've got this conflict um, emerging and obviously, I, I don't expect a, a short and sharp answer to this, but maybe tools of thinking through these types of conflict where you've got conflicting responsibilities and conflicting kindnesses. Yeah, yeah. Well, actually, I can give you a short answer to that one because I happen to know that the Dalai Lama um, travels quite a bit, obviously, and his rule, he's, he would be vegetarian by, by, by um, desire, um, but in, out of respect to wherever he's, he's uh, being served a meal, if he is served meat, he will eat it. Yeah. So in other words, he's taken the view that the value of the connection is, and the kindness associated with that is stronger than the um, principle, if you like. Um, and in fact, the Tibetans have an interesting attitude to, to vegetarianism in the sense that um, if they haven't been involved in the killing of the animal itself... Um, and various other things, they will actually eat meat. And there's probably re historical reasons why that was a good idea in terms of food availability in Tibet and, and things like that. But um, ultimately, I guess the, the view would be, or his, the Dalai Lama's view would be that the importance of respecting the other person, the kindness associated with that, supersedes the individual self-kindness, if you like, that we talked about earlier. And the animal's kindness. Yeah, <laughs> indeed. It's, indeed. It's, it's also, I, I think, importantly, uh, gratitude to the animal whose life was yep. given. That um, there's a difference between causing Respect. an animal to be killed and coming and discovering that an animal has been killed. And is, I mean, it's, it is, in a sense, more respectful and more more an act of gratitude um, to take that in and to engage. You, you're also engaging with a relationship with that animal, with that animal's life. Um, and it's the difference between trying to skillfully discover what is the, the kind or what are the kind things to do, as opposed to being attached to an idea of what's kind or a rule. So that's often the tricky thing to say, well, what actually would constitute kindness to all the beings who might be affected. I mean, you're right to ask about what about the animal. Um, and sometimes we get very attached to, okay, on principle I would do this or not do that. Um, yeah, um, but flexible, not just wishy-washy, but, but flexible skillfully and, and always learning. And I'm sure the Haudenosaunee and Anishinaabe cultures and many other indigenous cultures 
when they kill an animal, it's with great respect when they consume that animal, right? As far as I know. This, this yeah. is what I've heard, yeah. yeah. Your second question was about uh, books that we might recommend. And I'll just give one that uh, was life-changing for me. And it was recommended by another prof in a similar situation to this called Chuck, Chuck Molson, who is in statistics or was in statistics. Anyway, the book is by Thaynat Han. You mentioned Thaynat mm. Han earlier on. And Peace is Every Step. It was a book that I particularly enjoyed. There are many others if you want to email me. Well, there's synchronicity because my, my first thought was anything by Thich Nhat Hanh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, hi, my name is Danton. Um, <clears throat> I'm a first-year student here at Queen's, uh, but I've done a lot of traveling and music and seen a lot of the world. Um, I really appreciate these two subjects coming together because, um, you know, you're a biologist yourself, a soil ecologist, um, and um, you're a philosopher. And so how these two subjects come together really implies stewardship for humans. Uh, and if, if there's a moral obligation for, um, you know, helping, helping out the ecology. And if we can, um, I think in what science can offer is um, how, what are the conditions for fertility and why is it important? Um, well, one of my observations is that uh, in my travels is that areas where there's good fertility, good uh, soil health, uh, we have healthier people, people tend to be kinder, nicer to each other uh, and want to keep managing that. So um, do, we, do, you, do you both think that there's a moral um, obligation that we have as, as, as people to you know, bridge these two things together, get people excited um, about, you know, living uh, and living in relationship with the, what is fundamental, which, which is the planet, so. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, 100%. Yep, those interconnections, some of the ones you mentioned, being aware of those surely is the foundation for us potentially moving towards more sustainable living, so. Absolutely. As an ecologist, have you have you done much study into like how how do we how do we help the environment? Is that some of your research? Um, I, I've certainly read a fair bit about it, um, and it turns out that the most sustainable cultures were indigenous cultures. Um, but there's a really important reason why, why that. First of all, they were small groups of people, and they had lots of land, so resources were not limiting in the same sense as we are finding now. So. Um, <clears throat> For 95% of our existence for the homo species, we were hunter-gatherers in the Ice Age. And most of our traits, etc., are adapted to that kind of lifestyle, living in small groups. Now, of course, we live in a very different way, and so there's a lot of changing in the way we, we live necessary for us to reach sustainable living. And that's why I went on to about this idea about aspiring to be homo sapiens. How ought we to live? is the fundamental question. Yeah, I think, I think our ideas and our consciousness and our practices have not caught up with those kinds of changes. So there, there, are, there are old wisdom tra traditions that perhaps came out of other ways of living, and that wisdom may still be relevant, but we also need to connect that with the kinds of worlds that we're, we're, we're living in. And I think a lot of that wisdom is still true, but we need to you know, be aware of where we are historically and um, in space and, and, and time. And that doesn't necessarily mean accepting it all or not accepting it, um, but uh, being alive to the need to 
as you say, to connect to all those really fundamental, vital um, elements. Thank you for that question. So our time in the fireplace room has come to a close. Thank you to everyone for being here today. And special thanks to Jackie Davies and Paul Grogan for sharing their wisdom with us. Thank you. Thank you. You have been listening to a conversation in the Fireplace series at Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario, Canada. I am Dr. Barbara Crow, Dean of the Faculty of Arts and Science. Music for this series is from the composition The Passion of Angels by Queen's composer Marianne Mozedich. Thank you for listening. Please visit CFRC Radio at cfrc.ca to hear more talks in this series. Thank you.